The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. other listeners. This is Cliff Schechter. I'll be taking you through the next two hours. I am filling in for the one, the only Leslie Marshall. We'll be talking about what else? Uh, a lot of politics today. We'll be looking at polls. Uh, we'll be talking about some of the, uh, some of the, no nicer word for it, racism uh, that's been coming out of uh, the Trump campaign um, and uh, sort of pulling at the, the various threads of our society. Um, We'll, uh, we'll have some great guests on. Um, we've got uh, Lad Everett coming up uh, from One Pulse down the line, a lot of work against, uh, against gun violence. Jason Box, who's our, our analyst of the polls. We've got Jared Yates Sexton, who spent a night tweeting out uh, from a Green, Greensboro event uh, of Donald Trump's. It's a little bit scary. Um, coming up next, I'm really, really excited to have on um, Tom Segru, I call him Tom, but I probably should call him Thomas J. Segru, who's a professor uh, of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU, um, has written enough books, uh, all that win more awards than you can imagine, Origins of the Urban Crisis, Sweet Land of Liberty, uh, so many. I'm lucky in that uh, as a young pup, as undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania, he was my history professor and advisor, and um, I give him a lot of responsibility for the fact that I'm sitting here right now, so you can either thank him or blame him for that. Um, but um, I think uh, without further ado, uh, I'll, uh, I'll invite on uh, Dr. Segru. Tom, are you there? Hey, Cliff. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Um, how are you? I am excellent. That's good to know. Now in, now in New York at NYU. That's so, right. Uh, um, relocated to the Big Apple. Uh, well, great. Enjoying it? It is uh, a, a great place to be, uh, especially because uh, we have two presidential candidates, both of whom hail from uh, uh, this state. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a pretty interesting vantage point to be watching what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Well, it's funny. We have you on here to talk just about that kind of thing. Um, you know, look, I... I uh, Obviously, read your your books. I took your classes. Um, I think you're probably one of the most knowledgeable, if not the most knowledgeable, person uh, about history of race, especially in the post-war period. And what you wrote about in, in Origins of the Urban Crisis, for people who don't know, where, where um, Tom wrote about Detroit, where he grew up. And of course, we often hear a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of charges, I think, come from the right about Detroit being an example of a failed democratic city or Democrat city, as I suppose they would call it. Um, but you had a different story to tell. And I, and I feel like it's, it's really important, Tom, in, in terms of what we're seeing now with a lot of the, the Band-Aids being ripped off by Trump and his campaign. 
Um, so I'd love you to talk a little bit, if that's okay, about the history, especially you went beyond in Sweetland and Liberty and talked about other northern cities. And so some of what we're seeing when we see Trump go and talk to Milwaukee, of course, he won't go into the city. He's like way out in the burbs. But Milwaukee and Detroit and, and sort of talking to, to an African-American crowd, of course, in the most condescending and, and stereotypical ways. Let me, let me get to an actual question. I apologize. What, you know, do you, do you see what Trump is doing? Is he playing on 40, 50 years of what has been going on, maybe not as overtly in recent years? Or uh, are we seeing something different with Trump? Oh, I think Trump is building on a good half century of uh, racially laden politics on the political right, really going back to Barry Goldwater's appeal to uh, Southern Democrats disaffected with the party's position on civil rights, to Nixon's so-called silent majority strategy, which was targeted towards Southerners, but also toward Northern whites who believed that change was happening too fast and who worried about um, African Americans moving into their neighborhoods. Um, there's been a uh, a dog whistle politics uh, in the GOP uh, over the last 50 years or so, um, and that just beneath the surface, um, there there is still a lot of roiling racial tension and animus, and you know. So Trump, in some ways, isn't breaking from that. He's just doing it, I think, in a less um, delicate way. Uh, you know, he's throwing off the euphemisms and right. um, speaking much more bluntly than any candidate has probably since uh, George Wallace made his insurgent run for um, the presidency in 1968. Yeah, it's interesting. He doesn't seem to have read the sort of the, the dog whistle playbook where you imply a lot of these things, but you don't come right out and say, and, and you can, I think, tell in some of his real beliefs, you know, when he's talking to the African-American crowds sort of saying, you all live in, you know, the inner city. You, you can't walk down your streets without getting shot. I mean, a lot of this kind of stuff that's so stereotypical, so it seems ingrained in him. Um, I'm wondering, you know, he, he, of course, in a lot of what he's claiming is, it almost is saying, you know, it's your fault in some ways. Your neighborhoods have become this. You're, you know, the, the Democrats have failed you, and, and uh, you know, the people get shot walking down your block. You know, how, how your knowledge of history, for example, what took place in Detroit, where actual government policy led to some of the things we're seeing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. I mean, I, I think a really telling moment um, that connects history and the present is when Trump went to give his economic policy speech in Detroit uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, he offered what has become a pretty commonplace critique of the Democrats. Uh, um, he put it particularly bluntly. He said, look at this city. Um, it's messed up because of Democratic leadership. Uh, it is facing its problems because of excessive regulation, right? As if the problems of Detroit and other old industrial cities can be um, blamed uh, primarily or even at all on federal regulatory policy. And so when I wrote my book, Origins of the Urban Crisis, about Detroit, um, I explored some of these arguments about why Detroit and other cities saw disinvestment and population decline. And the commonplace explanation is 
everything was great until the war on poverty and until the social movements of the 1960s and to the rise right. of the divisive black power politics and um, the takeover of the cities by African-American elected officials. And only somehow if we could roll the clock back, we would uh, have a city that was still economically vital, energetic, and, and uh, you know, and, and growing in terms of population. And, you know, that overlooks decades worth of public policies and private actions by you know investors and big companies about where to put resources and so really after world war ii the federal government subsidized the decentralization of american industry you know to places like uh... the deep south and to california and to arizona places that were basically nothing uh, before the Second World War that became major magnets for defense industry, um, in large part because they had powerful members of Congress who used the power of the purse to channel uh, investment, uh, particularly in the military-industrial complex, to their districts. Detroit and other big cities got burned by that. The construction of the interstate highway system, uh, right, which course. is a, a kind of a taken-for-granted feature on the landscape, also allowed for the decentralization of population and, and, and industry. Um, and a whole series of tax policies that, you know, and essentially the lack of regulation of business um, allowed companies to pick up and relocate to low-wage regions in the United States and then increasingly you know, to other parts of the world. And so to understand Detroit requires looking at all of that happening um, over a 50-, 60-year period. It wasn't just that somehow, you know, Jimmy Carter showed up on the scene and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, poof, all the jobs in Detroit disappear, or Detroit gets its first African-American mayor, and all of a sudden the dream of the Motor City blows up into dust as racial conflict takes over. That's a complete misreading of the past. All right, well, we're about to go to a break. Tom, we'll come back and we'll pick this up. Thanks. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Marshall Show. This is Cliff Schechter. I will be your host. I'm guest hosting for Leslie. I'm excited to be here. I'm on with Tom Segru, Dr. Tom Segru. We're talking a little bit about the use of race uh, in in this campaign, as well as uh, a history of, of racial discrimination that, that has led to, I think, almost the Frankenstein monster of Donald Trump. Um, Tom, are you there? I sure am, Cliff. It's great to be back. All right. Good to have you back. So, you know, I've, I've seen some some things. I'm wondering what your take on this as as a historian. Um, it seemed like in the past uh, there's there's so much of this regional split that's still dated to the Civil War um, in terms of the North and South. And so you had a lot of rural white voters in the North who who didn't seem to sort of go as easily. I'm trying to think, find the right words with the with the kinds of racist appeals. I mean, I, I know. George Wallace was able to appeal to northern ethnics, no doubt. Um, but it seems to me it's almost like a, a dixification in some areas. I think the best example would be West Virginia, who obviously split from Virginia over the Civil War and now may be one of the biggest 
conservative strongholds. So have you seen, you know, in sort of rural areas of the Midwest and other areas where it, it kind of used to be the, this, the, the, it was sort of, well, if Southerners believe that, maybe I don't, and that's kind of disappeared from the landscape, and they've been, the, the, the sort of nationalist right has been able to unite those groups a little bit more? Definitely. I mean, I, what we see is, you know, uh, some of the most uh, intense support for Donald Trump in the heavily white areas um, in the border states. Kentucky, West Virginia, Indiana, uh, places that have, um, you know, I think a, a couple of distinctive features. You know, they've been left behind economically, but perhaps more importantly, um, they're places with relatively small African-American populations compared to some of the surrounding states, um, which uh, I think you know, I think part of the change that you're describing, it's, it's not necessarily dixification so much as it is. You've got folks who um, are not living with, working with, um, going to school with African-Americans who um, nonetheless hold out uh, African-Americans as you know, the cause of many of society's problems, who feel like they have to find a scapegoat for the troubles that they're facing. I mean, same with uh, uh, the animus directed towards Mexican immigrants. I mean, there are hardly any Mexican immigrants uh, in uh, these border states within West Virginia, Kentucky, sure. Indiana. Right. I mean, they're just, I mean, there have been no immigration or low immigration regions for pretty much the entire 20th century. Um, but you have the vision of these folks, you know, coming into America and, and transforming it. So people are looking for quick and easy answers to um, social changes, and they're falling back on some of the oldest cliches in, in American political history, that a racial or ethnic other is responsible for their problems. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and the, the appeal seems so blatant at this point, as we discussed. I mean, some, I mean, I know, look, we can look back and you, you find that history of, of the Southern strategy with Nixon, Reagan, with, you know, the, some of the comments about welfare queens and Philadelphia, Mississippi as a starting point for his 1980 campaign, obviously where the three civil rights workers were slain and speaking about states' rights. It's been there always, but it seems like it's such a, a new level um, with Trump. To, to take it to that next point of, of really, you know, um, I mean, openly, I remember, you know, Barry Goldwater rejecting the endorsement of the Ku Klux Klan. And now uh, it seems, that depending on the day, Trump can't remember whether he's supposed to accept or reject David Duke. Um, in Absolutely. any case, I, one, of the, one of the interesting things that's coming out, though, is, I mean, and this is maybe a sign of political changes, how close the race is in some of those southern states that were um, real backwaters in the 1960s and 1970s. I mean, think about um, Georgia, where we haven't you know, seen much uh, uh, success on the state level uh, for the Democrats uh, you know, in, in more than 20 years, or um, even South Carolina, I mean, you know, which yeah. is the home state of, uh, of, of Strom Thurmond. I mean, Trump is ahead there, but only by a couple of points. And so it's clear that this poisonous... Uh, racial politics and kind of vitriol that's coming out of, the, of Trump's mouth and Trump's campaign um, is alienating uh, folks who um, might otherwise pull the lever for the Republican candidate. So times have changed. You know, I think the difference now is the difference, you know, in the South between rural and exurban areas and you know, urban and, and and near suburban areas where you've got white voters who are inclined to be 
economically conservative and and right. um, but who find themselves not being able to stomach the the kind of the intense rhetoric of Trump. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the next couple of months. Yeah, it seems to me it might that might be what's responsible for that split we're seeing uh, between college educated white voters and non-college educated because the college educated white voters you know I, I from what I'm I'm trying to remember I think it's since Eisenhower a democrat hasn't won them and it looks like Hillary might do that and that's at least who I'm thinking of those voters are in the south who you're talking about who are sort of urban suburban you know middle class upper middle class and and uh and college grads who uh this is a sort of a bridge too far for them definitely and and you know and and in some ways um, this is reviving a, a southern middle of the road coalition. There was an interesting article by Joe Crispino, um, who's a historian at Emory in the New York Times, uh, yesterday or the day before. Um, and Crispino goes back and says, "Look, in the 1970s, there were a lot of moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans in the suburban South who um, hadn't necessarily gone all the way in terms of their anti-civil rights politics and and." Um, those are the folks that voted for Jimmy Carter in 1976, uh, and um, the you know so the story of the South is a is a kind of a complicated one, and I think we're we might be seeing in this election if the trends keep going the way they are, and historians aren't very good looking their crystal balls, but if they keep going where they are, and Trump loses in states like Georgia um, or you know barely ekes it out in places like South Carolina, we're seeing the signs of of a pretty interesting political shift that might uh, uh, take place in. In the, in the upcoming years. Yeah, and when you're talking about the Deep South, interestingly enough, I saw some polling that was showing even in Mississippi, because you've got an African-American population, about 37% or so, where it could even end up being something where if he loses enough white voters, it could get closer there. I mean, that would be... And- Mississippi, huh? and, and go to the you know, and go to the heart of uh, of kind of far right politics in the United States, or one of the hearts, and that's Texas. And um, recent polls are showing that younger Texans, um, who are more multi ethnic and um, are far more likely to be Democratic than Republican. So we might be right at the edge of a cataclysmic for the Republicans, cataclysmic shift, a dramatic demographic shift that's going to reflect itself in different. Uh, voting uh, patterns for this kind of younger generation of voters. And, you know, these 18 to 35-year-olds in Texas, you know, become 50-year-olds and they, you know, cut their teeth voting for or against people like Donald Trump. That could really reconfigure national politics in interesting ways. We're running out of time. I wanted to say thank you so much. Everybody follow Tom at Tom Sugru, S-U-G-R-U-E, on Twitter. Buy yourself Origins of the Urban Crisis or Sweet Land of Liberty or any of his other books. And you'll learn as much as I did. Thank you so much for being on, Tom. Leslie Marshall Show. This is Cliff Schechter. I am guest hosting for Leslie. She gave me the keys. Hopefully she doesn't regret that. Um, we had a great conversation with Tom Segru just now. We're, we've got so much more coming up for you. Um, what shall we do? I think, uh, we well, we have a caller on the line, but why don't we go first um, to our next guest, 
who is Jared Yates Sexton. He's a freelance writer, written for the New York Times, New Republic, assistant professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern, and really maybe the gutsiest man alive because he went into the heart of the beast, um, which is a Trump rally in Greensboro, North Carolina. And uh, he's come out alive to tell the tale. So we thought we would have him on and talk a little bit about his, uh, <laughs> his frightening tweets from there. Are you with us, Jared? I am. Thanks for having me, Cliff. Hey, man, my pleasure. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. You know, um, having neo-Nazis after you is sort of, uh, uh, it makes every breath uh, the next one the best one, right? Doesn't it? Uh, it only <laughs> makes you appreciate your life that much more. It does, it does. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're just sarcastic, fun-loving people. So that's how they, they are. Those neo-Nazis, you get a couple of drinks in them, they're a fun bunch. They really are. <laughs> right, it's all surface <laughs> level. <laughs> it's exactly all surface level hate. You know, it's 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 deep. <laughs> so, tell me about what happened. I could actually, I mean, I could hell, I could read some of your tweets off, but uh, but it's probably better coming from you. You uh, you were inside. Tell me a little bit about what it was like being inside that rally, especially as they yeah. kind of picked you out as a media guy, right? Yeah, you know, I, I go inside these rallies, and I, I, I don't like to go into the media pit, so I, I basically go into cover and I go into the scrum, so to speak. Um, the last one uh, that I went to was actually in Charlotte, and uh, I'll tell you, I've heard I've heard a lot of stuff. I've heard like the most misogynistic, racist, racist, xenophobic stuff you can imagine. But, hey, was uh, the live tweeting from Charlotte? Was that my mistake saying it was Greenboro? Yeah, Greensboro was okay. the, the first one that kind of put me on the map, and that was that was where they were saying that the gays had it coming, which is just a charming sort of observation. Yeah, um, so you nice. know, in, in Charlotte, it had turned, and it was obvious that people have started to understand that he could possibly uh, Trump could possibly lose this race, and the real conversation du jour between talking about lobotomizing reporters and jailing them, the big talk was uh, if Trump doesn't win, and obviously. Obviously, it's a rigged election if he doesn't win. But the big talk is, if he loses, these people are ready for revolution or the next civil war. Wow. If they're going to lobotomize reporters, though, the only question I have is, what would they do with Tucker Carlson? (laughs) I mean, if two negatives equal a positive, he might actually become... Okay, I'll I'll stop now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I digress. Um, So, yeah, um, a little bit over the line... You've got these angry, resentful people. You have somebody up on stage playing to all the anger, all the resentment. I don't know if you heard our last guest on, Professor Segru, who has looked mm-hmm. a lot into issues of race in America, and we're discussing that. Um, and it's almost like Trump, uh, not almost like, Trump has purposely just poked at that constantly, playing to every sort of fear and resentment. And so, I mean, you know, I, sometimes we overdo it, right? There's Godwin's Law, and uh, we, we sort of, go with these cliches but uh, but you were inside there i've been at like open carry rallies before and a few things like that so i know how i felt i want to hear like i mean did you did this do you did you feel like you were in the middle of something that you'd read in history books i mean did this feel kind of like a, a fascist rally Oh, absolutely. I mean, these these are events where these people come together, and they're they're not just comfortable in spouting this sort of hateful nonsense, but they're actually encouraged by each other. And the longer you're there, and the more that you see these people sort of feeding off of each other, like the worse that the rhetoric grows. By the time the thing lets out, I mean, people are ready to go out and hurt protesters. They're talking about 
armed revolution. They're talking about, you know, personally hurting reporters. I mean, the, the, the more that you're in there and the more that you're sort of towing this line between trying to stay inconspicuous while also reporting on this stuff, um, it, it's a very tense thing. And, and I've noticed lately, as, as my reportage has sort of gotten a little bit more of attention, uh, I'm starting to get recognized at these things. And I, I think that's sort of a, a really uncomfortable reality I'm starting to face. You may have to start sort of dressing up soon, putting on, like, all sorts of disguises. Although if you wear anything that's really not, like, kind of white and male, they'll be, they may want to hurt you even more. So, um, exactly. yeah. Exactly. And I'm a white male, so I have this incredible privilege of, tr- you know, being able to blend in with them. But, I mean, it's certain things. It's, I've been told it's my glasses. I've been told it's my beard. I've been told that I don't, quote, unquote, look right. So, I mean, it's it's... You know, I wore a Make America Great hat again, which, by the way, are just terrible hats. And <laughs> I wore one of these because they made China dollars. great again. By where were they made those? I believe that one was Bangladesh. So I'm, oh. I'm thinking it wasn't official Trump merchandise because I think he goes straight to China. Good point. That was too high on the scale. I think there's a few extra cents per hour paid there, and he's not willing to do that. <laughs> um, so, all right. So you've been in a number of these things. You're a, you're a creative writer by trade, sort mm-hmm. of, right? Not sort of, you are. Mm-hmm. Um, do, we, do, we, do we have a novel coming out of this, movie? I, you know, I, I'm working on a novel, but I've actually uh, I've got a book that I'm working on right now. Um, I've actually been lucky enough to be at some of the bigger moments of this campaign. Like, I was originally doing this just on my own, and I, I went out. I was actually there the night that he announced the proposed Muslim ban, and, they, you know, his supporters were outside threatening protesters with guns and violence. And, I, and, you know, I was there for that first Breitbart speech, which was just an abysmal experience on every level. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a little bit. Bit of, a, of a narrative that's coming from this and sort of examining what this Trump phenomenon really is at the heart of it. Um, yeah, well, I think we've, uh, you know, we're, we, we're getting to the point where, where you may be able to sort of work in some Thunderdome themes. I, I, I see a Mad Max kind of thing going on. and uh, Or maybe just play like that Star Trek fight music, you know, where they throw each person like a a bayonet or something of that nature. I mean, it's usually some futuristic. Hey, they're ready for it. I mean, you know, in in the aftermath of that Charlotte rally, I noticed a lot of people getting a hold of me on Twitter. I mean, just these awful alt right thugs who are just talking about, you know, they've got the weapons ready. They're totally prepared on election day to start this next civil war. I mean, these people are ready for an apocalyptic scenario. Like, I, I don't even think that's exaggeration at this point. No. I don't. And the thing is, I like to joke about it. Obviously, that's all I can do to a certain degree. You know, we bring attention to it. I do take it seriously, however. And look, look what we saw with the the, the, the two, uh, the imam shot in New York. You know, I, mm-hmm. I it disturbs me because it's looking like this is going to be a Hillary Clinton victory. I mean, thank God for that. Um, but it, it could be quite big, particularly in some of the states where he's saying it'll be rigged if he loses, like Pennsylvania, where he theori- theoretically could lose by 10 points. You know, and, uh, you know, what, what happens then? These guys are out there. They're heavily armed because we allow them to be heavily armed. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of like what happened at that NAACP headquarters the other day, if you saw that, where they were shouting white lives matter and holding a Confederate flag. And, and I don't remember which city the NAACP headquarters was in, but, oh, I think it was Houston, clearly meant to intimidate. I mean, how you know what does it take from there to to light a match for a spark to go and and one of these things to turn really ugly, and when Trump's feeding him this rhetoric, obviously, 
I don't know. It's you know, I do like again. I mean, I, I do all I can. I have to make fun of these these guys because no one should take them seriously as thinkers or you know anything like that. But it's a little worrisome, and and you've seen it up close. So my guess is you're probably a little concerned about it too. Well, I'm really concerned about it because here's the thing. Whenever he started spouting this whole rigged election business, I sort of shook my head and I said, everyone's going to see this as sort of a sore loser in the making situation. But they are parroting his rhetoric in unbelievable ways. And the, and the, the other scary thing about it is they obviously see between the lines of what he can and can't say. And, you know, when he's up there talking about Second Amendment people and all that stuff, it's obvious that these people know what he's saying and they're filling in right. blanks for him and i mean they they obviously buy into what he's saying and i mean if, if they think that an election's stolen from them especially at this point in our history like i really see a lot of these people being pushed towards violence for sure yikes um okay well, let's talk more about this we've got michael from the bronx on the line we're going to a break but we're going to bring him in and we're going to keep discussing it with professor writer bon vivant jared yates sexton you're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Marshall Show. This is Cliff Schechter. I am guest hosting. Um, you can find me at Cliff Schechter on Twitter. I am an author. I am a PR guy, and uh, I write some stuff about politics. There's a guy on the phone with us right now, or a guy I'm speaking to right now, who writes some stuff about politics. His name is Jared Yates Sexton. Jared, are you there? I am. Excellent. We're going to talk more about this. I thought we might also get a... Uh, uh, Mike Michael from the Bronx has been very patient sitting on line two for a while. I thought we might bring him in. And I am there, here. Michael. Michael, yes. you're, you're a trooper for hanging on the line so long. I really appreciate that. Because this is very important stuff to me, believe me. And for the record, I am African American, and I am totally flabbergasted by Donald Trump, and I'm going to add his partner in crime, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who I had to endure with for eight years. I mean, I can go into a, another um, into details, but that's for another forum. But some um, hey, Michael, some uh, you committed. promise you you promise you'll forgive me for this one because I, I feel like maybe this is the best time for a, a um, for me to, to admit my sins might be on the air. You know, I grew up in New York, and the first yeah. time, not the second time, but the first time, I indeed voted for Rudy Giuliani. It is something I'm that uh, I will. Spent a lot of time in my life uh, trying to repay that debt to society. Um, and uh, as he gets crazier and crazier and more unhinged and more unhinged, uh, it's amazing. I guess uh, you could always see the, the sort of authoritarian personality, but he hid it behind some moderate stances. And I was a kid, and, uh, you know, like, yeah, not a well, kid in the Ryan Locke sense. More like the 18-year-old well, sense. Go ahead. Well, Cliff, I do not... Um I don't have any um, grievances against you. I don't. It's not your fault because there are those that actually fell for Giuliani's crap, and there are those who did not and were very skeptical. And those that fell for it, I understand because of him running the 
fear-mongering rhetoric of fighting crime, this and that. And then he himself is a blasted criminal. You know, right, and in, you, in but you, uh, you didn't fall for it. And, and I'll, I will say that at least the second time, um, I did not. I learned my lesson, and I, I opposed him. Uh, Jared's on, on but, the line. I want to ask Jared. Jared, are you there? But, yes, I am. It's more Have you... Is, well, uh, yeah, we'll get back, I promise. But has Rudy, has he shown up at any of these events that you've been at? Oh, absolutely. He was there at the Charlotte rally just last week. And any specific uh, lunacy we should know about from him? Any of the, any racism or conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton's health or, or whether we really went to the moon or not? Anything of that variety? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're watching a very public unraveling of a very public figure. And the moment he stands behind a podium, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's him talking about how he was a former prosecutor and how he would have no trouble prosecuting Clinton and obviously these wink-wink, nudge-nudges thing about her health. And, I mean, it, it's a very, very embarrassing spectacle. Yeah. Hey, you well, know Michael, something? I want to I get you yeah, jump back in, Michael. Tell me what, what you got. Well, for, well furthermore, regarding Giuliani, I'm, why don't people ask him why he's a former prosecutor? Because his butt was disbarred because he engaged in gross prosecutorial misconduct, and the, deal, and the deal was either he go ahead and try to fight the charges and face serious federal um, federal incarceration time, or he withdraws from practicing law and turns over his license and never, ever practice law again. And this well, was listen, he, he made the mayor. This guy made Bernie Carrick the head of the police. I mean, you know, doesn't isn't much more clear the graft than than that. Yeah, there were so many charges uh, coming out of that administration with Giuliani. There was it felt a lot in some ways like Trump. There was so much you found out about favors done for friends and cutting corners and all. And then there was the serious things. I mean, Bernie Carrick ended up going to prison. And he not only had him as the head of the police, but he was pushing him for uh, for the Department of Homeland Security. What you said about people becoming federal prosecutors, I think a lot of people don't know that often it's just that uh, you gave money to the right person. How do you think Chris Christie became one in New Jersey? A guy just as ethically unmoored, uh, as angry and temperamental as both Giuliani and Trump. And look at the position he – and that's what ended up promoting him to where he became governor. Um, how about that? Hey, Jared, Chris Christie showing up at any of these things, even maybe just to get their McDonald's order or anything like that? <laughs> no. I've never seen Christie at one of these events, but the funniest thing about it is at every one of these events, there's always a rumor in the crowd that Christie is backstage and Trump won't let him near the microphone. Like, everyone is just totally, totally pitying Chris Christie at this point. So basically, uh, I mean, if they, they haven't had him standing behind Trump, sort of staring directly at his back, you know, maybe uh, doing some sort of a goose step towards him. I think they figured out that that's a pretty poor optic. I mean, even though, you know, it supplied a whole lot of uh, enjoyment on my end and a lot of other people's ends, I, I think they figured out finally. Maybe that's the one thing they've improved on in this entire campaign. So what are you going to do from here on in? You're, I assume you may go to more of these rallies. Do you have, do you have anything planned, uh, things you may be writing that everyone should be looking for? Or I don't know if you may even have the the, the – uh, the wherewithal, the courage to videotape, although that could probably get you in lots of trouble. But what what uh, what is your plan for some of these other rallies? Where can we see you uh, fully describe the, the experience you've had? 
Well, I, I try really hard not to let people know beforehand when I go to one of these rallies because I've basically been told that if you know if they figure out who I am or where I'm going, I'm not going to be right. allowed in. Don't tell us which ones. I just meant if there's a general sort of plan. Mm-hmm. Well, right now I'm working on an editorial uh, that's basically saying that Trump has more or less coalesced this uh, entire coalition of, of people that the GOP have been ashamed of for the past 30 years, but have been more than happy to use any chance they can. And uh, I'm planning So it's like the crew that. that's been locked up in the attic and they've kind of opened the door and let them all out? It's like they're seeing Absolutely. sunlight for the first you know, time? Yeah. Yeah, the shameful cousins that they don't like talking about. You know, the alt-right, the, the racist, the misogynist, all these people that they've always planned on using their votes, but they've never wanted to get the microphone. I think Trump has more or less become their voice. Hi, Caramba. Um, I think, uh, I think you, you and I have to get together and at some point maybe do a little fun uh, co-writing about this whole thing, because I still don't believe it's actually real. Uh, more than happy to, because I'll tell you what, the, the more I talk to people who have seen this or know it firsthand, I mean, it, it feels totally fictional, and it's so far beyond the pale of anything that we've ever seen in politics before. I mean, every time I talk to somebody else who feels the same way, I suddenly feel as if I've regained some shred of sanity that I've lost. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, I feel like I'm going to wake up and find out that uh, this never happened and I shot JR, perhaps. <laughs> um, hey, listen, so... so um, you're, you're, you're obviously you're, you're going to these. You're working on um, a, n- a number of pieces, taking you know taking some good notes for the rest of us. You're kind of like our conduit into this world. Um, is, you know, is there any? Uh, I mean, beyond you're gonna, so you've got some articles, editorials you're working on. Could you even see like a book coming out of it? Oh, yeah, for sure. I've been trying to compile this thing. Um, like I was talking about, I'm trying to figure out what happened at the heart of the Trump phenomenon, exactly where this is coming from. I mean, everyone wants to say it's economic anxiety, but I think that is such a small sort of focus on this situation. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people involved in this. And, you know, it's funny we were talking about Trump advocating now and up there talking about African-Americans. Like, it's so funny that we now have this group of people who are so obviously closeted in denial racist who are now finding this place where they're being told that it's okay to feel the way they do and they're not racist. I mean, you know, it's almost like they're their own personal confession candidate that they can have. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. And so it can be clear for people because we've got only a couple minutes. I don't want them to, to, to sort of even, you know, I mean, we're talking, you're at these rallies, you're hearing every form, I mean, even from the stage, right? You're hearing blatant racism, blatant misogyny. So, so for anybody out there even contemplating voting for Donald Trump who thinks, oh, you know, it was a misstep, he said this once, or, oh, he said that twice. I mean, this is at pretty much all these events are going to. Like, it's constant. Is that right? That's exactly right. The first event I went to, I was absolutely shocked to hear the president referred to with a racial slur. And every time after that, it's, it's just increased. It's gotten worse. I've seen them calling for Hillary Clinton's execution, wanting to personally do it. I mean, it has just increased and the tensions are just rising. I mean, it's, it's at every single one of these things. All right. We get to look forward to uh, a couple more months of this. Well, listen, uh, Jared, it's been awesome uh, having you join us. People can find you, if I'm correct, at J.Y. Sexton. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, on Twitter, is there anywhere else people should be looking for your future work uh, in deciphering as a sort of anthropologist into the world of the wingnut? Sure. Uh, I've got articles that go up on newrepublic.com and at atticusreview.org. There you go, folks. Check them out. 
this, this man is doing us all a service and deserves our thank you. Thanks, Jared. Hope to talk to you again soon, bud. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Hosting the wonderful Leslie Marshall show with the wonderful Leslie Marshall. She's off today. I'm filling in these two hours. Um, been having some great conversations about Trump and race, uh, America, and uh, I don't know. No apple pie yet. Um, going with that theme, we have we're very lucky to have Lad Everett, who I believe will be joining me in a couple seconds. Uh, Lad is the executive director of One Pulse, a new organization uh, that was created after the Orlando tragedy. Um, I'll let him talk a little bit more about their mission when it comes to gun violence prevention. Former communications director of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, generally a bulldog and a guy who uh, I always want in the, that foxhole with me on my side of things. Lad, are you here? Yeah. Hey, Cliff. How are you doing? All right, man. How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to be chatting with you. Always a pleasure. So... What, what, how about a general sort of explanation for people so they can know more about One Pulse and what you're doing? Yeah, One Pulse is uh, the gun violence prevention group that was started by uh, actor and LGBTQ uh, rights activist George Takei, uh, who guys who are as old as you and me know as Sulu from Star Trek, uh, <laughs> following the, the terrible uh, shooting in Orlando. Um, George hadn't been involved in the issue before then, but, you know, Orlando uh, hit home for him. Um, and, you know, at that point he realized it wasn't only about the violence, it was also about the chilling of uh, First Amendment rights, the right to assemble, uh, in particular in this case, and he felt he had to do something. And he started a Facebook group, One Pulse for America, and our kind of mission um, is to um, get people to take action on this issue. What we want to do is close uh, what has historically been known as the passion gap, with pro-gun activists and get people on our side, on the gun violence prevention side, um, more active than people who fetishize guns. And um, we're off to a good start. In just about two months, we have over 70,000 members, and I expect we'll keep growing, and folks are passionate about seeing some change. Yeah, I have no doubt with you at the helm there that it will grow. You've been an amazing, and I'm not just saying that because you're on here. You're, You're one of the guys that's... I mean, we're not where we want to be, certainly. We're far from it, but, but uh, any improvements, uh, vast improvements we've seen over the sort of last decade and really more the last couple of years with successful ballot measures and stopping some of the most zany 
of the NRA's legislation, which I, I don't I don't know. What are they doing this week? They're trying to put guns in swimming pools or something? I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. you, you've always been there, standing there and, and doing your best. So I have appreciated that. Um, speaking of that zany gun culture, let's talk about a little bit of this. Um, you know, I don't know if this is the same one. It seems like there's two gun raffles, but you can tell me if I'm wrong, Lad. The one, the thing I was reading about in Las Cruces, New Mexico, a police officer was shot and killed, which, of course, is always a terrible tragedy. But it seemed that people came together and decided the way to help the family was to raise money by raffling off an AR-15. Um, isn't that our whole problem here, that, that nobody sees irony or sort of a sickness in that? That, you, you know, we're going to put other people's lives in harm to, to theoretically help the situation? It's just, it's just sort of, in a manner of speaking, pushing, kicking the can down the road, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, um, it's strange. There is a disconnect there. Um, you know, it's not only that raffle, too. I, I actually had not heard about that raffle until you informed me about it. The one that I've been focused on is the one in Otero County, New Mexico, same state, um, where the United Way chapter there is raffling off actually a hundred guns, um, including assault weapons, which you know obviously is entirely uh, in contradiction with the United Way uh, mission. It, you know, there's a gun culture in this in this country, as we all know, and in some places, I think it's so entrenched that um, people are unable to take that step back and see. Um, you know, the, the disconnect here, you know, honoring a fallen officer, for example, by raffling off another gun when that officer was shot and killed. Um, some people, I think, are so entrenched in the culture that they can't, they can't even see that. I don't think it, 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 it clicks for them at all. Um, you know, I think that's why it's important, uh, um, you know, not only to work on legislation, which many of obviously the big groups in the movement are, but also to kind of confront the culture with some of these questions, you know, and um, I think we need to do that. And I think, I think changing the culture will lead also to some of the legislative reforms that we also desperately want. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with that. I'm a big believer in politics. You need cultural change before you get political change. You're, you, you know, follow this issue so closely. And you may, you know, you probably know this, and I don't think a lot of people know that, you know, when we're talking about before the 1980s, we're talking about, you know, even before the, the big, I say this as someone sitting here conducting this show from Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Revolt in 1977, where the hardliners took over the NRA when they're having their annual meeting in this town. Um, people don't realize that most states did not have shall issue concealed carry. It just, it wasn't a question. It's a completely ahistorical thing where the, the NRA tries to pretend that that's always been the case. It has not always been the case. Uh, people don't realize that there was actually a strong movement uh, for handgun control. That was the original name of the Brady campaign, wasn't it? Handgun Control Inc. So people saw this a different way and kind of like what we've seen happen with some other big industries. You could talk about big oil and others. But the gun industry sort of in a way had the field to themselves for a while and just pushed this propaganda, this sort of notion that we're all unsafe uh, by nature, even as, the, as, as crime has been going down. And, you know, you're, you're safer with a gun as opposed to the truth of the matter, which is you're not. And statistically, you can, I mean, anybody listening to this, if you like guns, that's fine, but there are statistics and truths, and you're much more likely to have somebody in your house be hurt uh, or injured, a relative or yourself, by that gun than somebody who theoretically is going to break in, which almost never happens. Um, you know, I mean, any, any thoughts on how we get that culture back? Is it just through 
what you're doing, maybe some of the things I've been involved in, the, you know, constantly sort of reminding people of our past or coming up with all new ways to kind of push the message forward? Well, I mean, I think it's a few things. I, I, I think some of the things that we've, we really needed to do, we've done since Newtown. You know, in that, in that group, I would put, um, you know, I'm not a fan of money in politics. I think we need to get money out of politics. But the fact that the NRA has had that field um, entirely to themselves for decades has cost a lot of lives in this country. So I do think, at least in the short term, that it's a good thing that we have uh, some PAC activity now on our side. Um, Mayor, uh, former Mayor Bloomberg's um, uh, Independence USA PAC, and of course the Americans for Responsible Solutions PAC, um, run by Gabby uh, Giffords and Mark Kelly. That's been an important development. I think we have a much uh, broader and stronger grassroots pr grassroots presence in this movement than we've had arguably ever. Um, you know, and that that involves the emergence of groups like Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. The right. strengthening of groups within states united to prevent gun violence and all their great state organizations. There's just a lot more hands uh, on deck in this movement than there ever have been. It's uh, it's really a much broader tent. Um, and then I, but I, I think the final piece that you were kind of hinting at is that if you go back to the you know the 70s or the the 80s. There was a lot more intensity in our movement in terms of what we were advocating for. You talked about uh, Brady being handgun control. The, the organization that I used to work for, the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, at that point was the National Coalition to Ban Handguns, and they were advocating wow. for a national ban of handguns. Um, if you look at the large groups in the movement today, like Every Town for Gun Safety uh, and Americans for Responsible Solutions, you see a very modest policy agenda you know they're they're not advocating for an assault weapons ban which is strange given that you know the president is hillary clinton is so many members of congress are they're advocating right. typically for expanded background checks some you know to disarm domestic abusers policies that are very important don't get me wrong but that enjoy really really overwhelming support yeah, 80 90 percent um, support yeah sure. 80 90 percent support so you know there's got to be a place for people who want policies that are common in other democracies, like licensing and registration, for example. There's got to be a place for those people to go. And, and I think we're losing the intensity that comes with, um, you know, that type of advocacy. I wrote a, uh, a blog post recently for Medium where I was saying, Great you know, you've you got to imagine what this sounds like on a legislator's end. You know, they get a call for us, and they're hearing, oh, you know, would you, you know, would you please support expanding background checks to some additional gun sales. That's what they hear from our side. Then what they're hearing from the other side is, if you support any gun reform, anything, even something like reporting lost and stolen guns, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure you never see elected office again. And, there's, you know, that, you know, these guys are going to away from pressure. Let's take this up. We've got a break coming up, and we've got a phone call or two. So let's take it to a break. We'll be right back. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Folks, 
We are back. This is Cliff Schechter. I am filling in for the great Leslie Marshall. Um, if you're interested in following me, you can find me on Twitter at Cliff Schechter. Um, we ha- are lucky enough to have Lad Everett with us right now. I'll say that. Um, are you with me, Lad? Do I, do I have you? Yep, I'm here. Okay, cool. Um, Lad is the, the executive director of One Pulse. Lad was talking about the importance when we went to break of uh, providing a left flank, I think we could call it. There's, uh, there's a lot of gun, great groups working on gun issues, but obviously a lot of what they're talking about is very moderate in scope. Ba- background checks supported by about 90% of the population. Yeah. All I can say, I'm sorry? Oh, no, go ahead, Cliff. Oh, I thought I heard you. All I can say is that uh, is Lad and I have had some discussions, and uh, I'll just throw it out here right now that uh, you'll, there, there's a little something coming along, folks, that I'm going to be sharing in a little while on that on that uh, front, the left flank. But we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Um, so, Lad, let's talk a little bit about um, – well, first of all, actually, I think we should grab a listener. So you brought up the, the, the role of money – in, in politics and the NRA having as much money as they have. We've got uh, Dean from Buffalo on line two. I hope he's still with us. Um, yep. And he, I believe if you're there, Dean, you were saying you believe the, that uh, the NRA shows us the vast importance of having campaign finance reform. Is that correct? Right, right, right. You know, the only reason that, um, not, that no gun control laws get passed is Wayne LaPierre and the NRA they have their hands in so many pockets on Capitol Hill. What we need to do is we need to have them come to Capitol Hill and have them testify in front of our committees and own up to everything. I don't think it's a bad idea at all. Heck, if they can uh, force Hillary Clinton in front of committees about 10,000 times and spend more manpower and hours on Benghazi than they did on 9-11 by a lot. Yeah, maybe we should get Wayne LaPierre and then see what he has to say. Maybe if uh, we have a good election coming up, that will happen. I want to continue with um, with you in a second. Lad, you would, you did a lot of work when you were at the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. Uh, you spoke a lot about insurrection and the idea of insurrection that's behind a lot of the right's rhetoric from calling, you know, ATF members jackbooted thugs, um, encouraging, uh, you, know, you know, violence against the government. This is the idea that guns uh, exist as a way to protect us from our own government, and that's what the founders were saying with their well-regulated militia. Can you uh, can you speak a little bit more about that? Because there's a piece in Vox recently by David Capel that kind of, in a moderate way, takes that argument. And I've, I've loved hearing you take that argument apart. Um, so I'm going to let you do that. Yeah, um, you, you, you recently Donald Trump made this comment about Second Amendment people, you know, saying that uh, if Hillary Clinton, um, you know, wins the presidency and then appoints a justice that would, you know, kind of reinterpret the Second Amendment in a way that pro-gunners didn't care for, that, you know, quote-unquote, Second Amendment people would take care of the problem. And Trump was, you know, hinting at this insurrectionist idea that you were just talking about. And, you know, basically the NRA has been promoting that idea for decades, saying that, you know, in their view, there is a, you know, some type of individual right to basically shoot and kill, you know, military service members, police officers, elected officials, and any other agents of government 
when one personally believes that our government is behaving, quote-unquote, tyrannically. And, you know, right. I, you know, Cliff, you've been in the politics business long enough to know that, you know, one man's tyranny is another man's health care reform, right? That, um, you yes. know, there's a lot of people chanting tyranny during the last eight years <laughs> as we've had our first African-American president. So, you know, it's a very dangerous idea. It's certainly not in accordance with what our founders laid out. You know, if you actually read the Constitution, you'll see in Article 1, Section 8, that our founders said that actually the purpose of the militia is to, quote-unquote, suppress insurrections, not to foment them. Uh, and there was a great uh, you know, deal of discussion at that time when the Constitution was being uh, drafted about, of course, Shays' Rebellion, uh, where individuals dissatisfied with, um, you know, the collection of certain debts took up arms to prevent that. Later we had the Whiskey Rebellion where there was um, disagreements with a federal tax, and George Washington himself had to come out of retirement and ride out into the field with 13,000 militia to put down that rebellion. So our founders didn't take very kindly to this idea that, you know, essentially people dissatisfied with public policy or, or, or decisions of a democratic government, you know, could take the law essentially into their own hands by threatening our government with force of arms. They, they you know, they, they react. We're supposed to solve it with ballots, not bullets, right? Ballots, not I bullets. Mean, yeah, that's, that's the American way. And, you know, sadly, I think, you know, after, after 40 years now, of very intense anti-government rhetoric from the conservative movement more broadly, um, you know, this insurrectionist idea, sadly, has found very fertile ground to the point where if you look at, I, I can't remember exactly how many Republicans originally ran for president, but, you know, so whatever it was, 16 people, you know, most of them have publicly embraced this idea. Um, you know, Ted Cruz at one point sent out a, a mailer to his folks bragging about it and asking them to give him money. So, you know, so they've mainstreamed this idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. was that the founders, right? I mean, which is something which the founders completely rejected. And as you pointed out, George Washington put down this rebellion. The idea was the Second Amendment was there for protection against, against rebellions such as that or attacks from outside, internal or external, because we had no standing army. I mean, am I correct in that? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, you know, if you look back at really what motivated the Second Amendment at that time, things have changed very dramatically. You know, at that time, our experience with uh, the British Army made us very scared, like you said, of a standing army. But if you, if you, if you flash forward 200-plus years, um, you know, we have arguably the most powerful military in the world. And there's no one in this country other than the fringe that is arguing that uh, our 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 army is suppressing, or our armed forces more broadly, yep. is suppressing liberty or freedom. You know, we, we glorify our military in this country. There are That's brothers, true. Our hey, lad? Yeah. We're going to have to go, but I want. where can people find you? Um, you know, come to Facebook, put in One Pulse for America, and come join our Facebook group there. We'd love to have you in it. We, uh, we are action-focused. back for our final half hour on the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Cliff Schechter. I am guest hosting for Leslie. I had the pleasure of speaking to a lot of very smart people, learning a lot of good stuff today. Um, I wouldn't want to leave you the last half hour without the benefit of, of uh, 
tapping into that inner political junkie in you. And so we're going to do some talking about some polls. And there are people out there who believe in the Nates. They've got their, their Nate Silver, their Nate Cohn. But for me, it's all about Jason. He, he's the man with the polls. So, Jason, are you on the line? Yeah, I can hear you, man. How you doing? All right. You're checking in from vacation, huh? Well, <clears throat> there are very few people that I would break the solemn vacation celibacy vow for. You are one of them. <laughs> I appreciate that. Next time I see uh, Rosalie, are we still going to be friends? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. It depends on whether or not she's listening into the show. <laughs> well, in all seriousness, thank you. And thank you even more for taking time off uh, while on vacation. Um, so knowing you, even while on vacation, you're paying attention to some of this craziness going on. Um, let's start with, with sort of the question of, you know, somebody, I'm trying to think, I was sent an interesting chart today um, where they were showing what polls lean towards Clinton or Trump. And I've, I've read some of the stuff that some of these, the various Nates I'm talking about have written about, um, which is it seems the daily tracking polls have had a little bit more of a Trump lean. Some people have gotten nervous because those have seemed to move in a Trump direction. But then you're getting things like, you know, Monmouth and NBC and Marist and all you know these other ones that are coming out that are showing six, eight, nine point Clinton leads are getting crazy polls. And when I say crazy, like bigger than I could have imagined. There's one that came out that showed a 16 point lead for Hillary in Virginia, um, Florida, similar 14 point lead for Hillary Clinton, and that one showed Rubio winning by six. So it makes you think that maybe it's not as crazy and far off as you suspected. I don't know what's going on with all this stuff. Make sense of it for us, Jason. Well, so I just got back from uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, which, uh, believe it or not, they pay closer attention to this stuff than a lot of the, a lot of my friends who live in Washington. Uh, and what I was telling them uh, was that, truthfully, anybody, I, I think uh, you see people who just go up and down and up and down in terms of their look, they look at individual polls. And uh, they get very excited, and then they look at another poll that might come out the next day, and then they get very depressed. And I feel like this is just a, a, a bad road to, to, to follow. So <laughs> it is. <laughs> what I try to tell people is that, really, and there are two pieces of, of advice that I have right now. One is uh, the two-way polls between Clinton and Trump, and we can talk a little bit more about, about this in a second, but the two-way polls between Clinton and Trump, I don't think accurately represent where uh, where this vote is going to be headed. I, I think that in a normal election, you could very easily ignore third-party candidates. But I think that given the incredibly high unfavorables of both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, I do think that those third-party candidates are going to have some staying power. So my first piece of advice is you really should pay attention to the four-way polls. Uh, there are fewer polls out there that actually do the four-way. Uh, NBC yeah. Survey Monkey does it. Ipsos does it. Rasmussen does it. Uh, YouGov does it. Uh, you should really pay attention to those four-way polls. And the four-way polls show, I think, a, a somewhat uncomfortably close race, anywhere between two and six points uh, okay. for a Clinton lead. The yeah. Um, you is, oh, go ahead. And, uh, the second thing I would tell you is you really need to be looking at the aggregate. Uh, and, you know, and the Nates do a really great job of, of doing this. Um, any one poll or any two polls over a short period of time 
could be reflecting a lot of different things out there. Uh, it could be a, an individual piece of news that's here today and forgotten tomorrow. Uh, it could be some weird house effect. It could be a solar flare that erupted over the, you know, over the southwest and just made people crazy for 24 hours. Um, (laughs) You really need to be looking at these aggregated uh, sites. Uh, That's going to lower your blood pressure and maybe keep you from making foolish decisions uh, about where you're going to move on November 9th. (laughs) Exactly. I like New Zealand myself. Um, I thought maybe Uh, becoming a shepherd. I I I was actually looking at property in Edinburgh in case, you know, See? Worst comes to worst. You know, yeah, I thought New Zealand, you know, I could be a shepherd. I could see it happening. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's a different life. And <laughs> Okay, so in a serious thing, and, and you are correct, uh, not that you need me to tell you that, but uh, for people listening, that that's so true because you can't, any individual polls, some are skewed one way or the other. When I say skewed, I don't mean, like, necessarily on purpose. Um, I'm not an unskewer. I think the smartest thing to do <laughs> is to look at all of them, as you said, I just wanted to get an idea from you if you thought there's, you know, because because I think it was Nate Silver who said that the the daily tracking are a little bit closer, and that's why you see this this difference um, from those and the other ones. But in the end, um, you, you can't if you jump north and south and east and west with every single individual poll, you will lose your mind. So yeah, sound advice. Daily, and Cliff, even those daily trackers are a little crazy. So you know, everyone there's a lot of talk about this. Um, L.A. Times, USC, uh, Southern Cal poll that just came up, which is uh, which is a daily tracker. But if you begin to peel away the layers of that onion, some of these daily trackers are, are actually pretty problematic. So that one is from a, a limited panel. So you've got basically yep. the same people taking the poll over and over and over again. Uh, matter of fact, it's got such problems that a lot of the aggregator sites aren't even including it. So I think we're way too far out. Uh, I think the daily trackers you should probably just ignore until, like, the middle of October. Solid. I think that's good advice. You know, and I ask you this because, uh, you know, like anybody else, I want to understand all of this. Um, and it seems to me, and again, I don't ever take any one poll. I try to think, who who's it coming from and what's their record? And, and luckily, again, a lot of people do that for you now. Um, but when you, when you do, you know, when you, you were saying two to six points – and it seems like the average on most of these sites right now, Real Clear Politics, Poll Tracker, a Talking Points Memo, some of the other ones show it to be somewhere between about a five-and-a-half and, and seven-point raise. Now, I, I try to be, as I said, a realist. I don't want somebody blowing sunshine. I want to know what the truth is. It's just it's hard to not think when you're saying two to six that it's not towards the larger end, only in that there have been so many of these state polls where, you know, one day you're seeing North Carolina, an eight-point lead for Hillary Clinton, and you're seeing between four and six in Ohio, and I've seen two different Florida polls now. There's the one that came out. Yeah, that shows 12. That sounds a little crazy, but another one showed six. And, you know, so you start seeing these, and then the Colorado and Virginia polls are simply insane. I mean, every one of them, and there have been numerous, have all been in double digits. So I'm trying to reconcile that with what the overall is, and that's why... I could be wrong, and please tell me if I am, because I want to know. But it seems like the overall has to be closer to six than it is to two. But I don't know. You uh, tell me. Yeah, I, I think it probably is closer to that larger margin clip. But the reality is, and you know this as well as I do, and I'm sure the listeners do too, is that um, last time I checked, constitutionally, we don't have a presidential election that is determined by a national poll. So, Good point. I really think... Uh, 
uh, well, what the, the really the smart thing to do uh, is to maybe step away from the ledge when it comes to looking at those national polls. I think those I think they're great directional polls, but really looking at the swing states, looking at places like Virginia, like Nevada, like Colorado, because at the end of the day, and this is really important, in order for Hillary Clinton to win, she has to win the same 19 states, the last six Democratic presidential candidates have won, plus one. And so I right. think these state polls are really the ones that we should care about. Well, those are looking pretty good. I mean, again, and I'm skeptical because I'm telling you right now, I saw that poll that had our 14 in Florida, which, I, again, I think is insane. But I do wonder to myself, well, how do they get or 12, 14? But how do they get that result? And then they've got Rubio. Oh, I guess Rubio may be up by more than six. Maybe that's maybe that's the answer. Right. Well, you know, well, that goes to a different question about optics and how you're and how and whether you're tying the party to Trump, which I know is another question you want to ask about. Yes, uh, look at you doing my segue for me. That's what I like about you, among many things, Jason. <laughs> I mean, it seems crazy to me. Again, I'm starting to see it. The th- person I think who's done this the best um, is Ann Kirkpatrick, who seemed to really start pinning uh, Trump to McCain, I- ironically enough, because of what he said about McCain. You'd think uh, <laughs> McCain had suffered enough indignity, but he won't. Refute, you know, refute, refute, refuse him, refuse to support him. I think is what I'm looking for. So we have a, we've got a more, Yeah, I'll get to English eventually, Jason. I get around. We we've got a break coming up. So why don't we continue with that thought uh, right after the break? How's that sound? Perfect. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. Eight 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 six Leslie. Final 15 minutes of our show. This is Cliff Schechter. I am filling in for the great Leslie Marshall. This is indeed the Leslie Marshall Show. And we have polling guru, research champ, Jason Boxed on the line. Jason, you there? I'm here. All right. Talk to me, Goose. Um, what's the uh, – what, why is it that we've seen a little bit of, of a couple candidates, Ann Kirkpatrick running for the U.S. Senate in Arizona, tying John McCain to Donald Trump? Um, we've seen a little bit of that in other places, but why? Maybe this is, is one of those things that's going to be sort of an onslaught after Labor Day. But I'm wondering why, considering his popularity among key groups in a lot of these states, why there has not been more of that. Yeah, so this is really that's a great question, man. That's um, so this has been an interesting phenomenon. So I think if uh, if you'll remember in the run-up to the Democratic National Convention, you saw, uh, I think, a pretty uh, a pretty obvious push by Hillary Clinton to communicate to Republicans that, hey, Donald Trump is not one of you, right? And I think yep. the whole goal there at a presidential level was for Hillary Clinton to peel away Republicans who just could not find it in themselves to pull the lever for somebody like a Donald Trump. Now, for Hillary Clinton, I think that's a great strategy because it really allows her to 
it's almost like basic economic theory, right? The further you can push somebody away from the from the center of whatever it is you right. want to be, the easier it is for you to peel those people off. Now, the problem with that strategy uh, is that it doesn't really help your Senate candidate, who actually have the opposite incentive. They actually want to tie they want to tie Donald Trump as closely as they can to the Republican who, to the Republican who they're running against. So I think. Uh, it's going to be an interesting strategy. I think this is one of those places where um, as terrible a Supreme Court decision as Citizens United was, uh, I do think it levels the playing field at the Senate level. You know, look, you've got a lot of big Republican donors who are not going to give money to Donald Trump. They're going to pour their money to defend the Senate. And I think right. Democrats are going to get on the same footing. So you get somebody like an anchor Patrick in Arizona or... Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, or like a Deborah Ross in North Carolina, where they are going to try really hard in races that they probably otherwise would lose. They're going to try really hard to tell everybody the exact opposite of what Hillary Clinton is telling them. She's going to tell them, you know what, this guy and is a unique a sort of different frame. Yeah, right. but this guy is like this is the Republican Party, and you. You know, Joe Heck may tell you that he's not a Donald Trump Republican, but that's BS. Don't you believe it? Because they are part of the same party. They are part of the same agenda-setting you know, institution. And that's going to be a really interesting dynamic that, you're, that we're going to watch play out. I think if the, if, if the presidential race stays close, I think it's going to be really hard for a, lot of, for a lot of these Senate candidates to make that message be heard in an environment where I think Hillary Clinton's message is going to be louder. If we see that race continue to grow, that gap continue to grow between Clinton and Trump, I think, it's, I think you'll see Hillary make that tone down that message, and then it'll be a lot easier uh, for those Democrats in Republican-leaning states to really hammer home the message that all Republicans suck. Yeah, for lack of a better term, the technical term. That makes a lot of sense, and of course, and that does. That makes a ton of sense. Um, and I know, I, look, I understand why Hillary Clinton's doing it. The bigger chance of winning in a landslide, you get the third party kind of endorsements from a variety of, of Republican bigs who've been Treasury Secretary, like Paulson, you know, and, and, and uh, some, of the, some of the people on the uh, foreign policy side, especially. I get all yeah. of that. Um, at the same time, what I, would, I, I mean, and maybe we'll see more of it, but. You know, the truth is, as we know, is Trump is just saying out loud, you know, and in a much more crude way, what a lot of these guys, if they don't think, the policies they've supported. I mean, they've all voted to defund Planned Parenthood. They've all voted to block background checks. They've all voted, uh, or not all, but many, I think most who are up for election right now, have voted against uh, for some nutty immigration plan, or not for a nutty one, but against a sane immigration plan. And we can go on and on. So I would think that, you know, I can write the ad in my head. Is like you try to find images of them together, and if you can't, well, put images of them side by side and show all the things they agree on. Maybe even if you catch a couple but, of them, like a, a Chuck Grassley or a John McCain, not known for being uh, having, let's call it, solid temperamental fitness, you put them alongside Trump and show them screaming obscenities with him and point out how silly yeah, they dude, are, that's, right? Yeah, that's exactly, dude, that's exactly it, man. I think that the presidential race is ultimately a cult of personality. It's, a, you know, it's, it's sort of an American ninja warrior at the personal level. Um, at the state level, you, you, you said it exactly right, that um, particularly in places where we, where, like in Arizona, where we know John McCain is no friend of, <laughs> of uh, Donald J. Trump, uh, but 
what the Democratic challengers have to do is to tie those two guys together on the issues. That Donald Trump says he's going to build a wall. Well, you know what? So does Joe Hack. Uh, you know, yep. Donald Trump says he's going to like he's going to well, whatever. I mean, you know, God, he's, there's a litany of things. But I think at the state level, it's all about tying them, tying them to issues. Right, that's what I would think, and I think issues yep. is most of it. And I think uh, in a couple of cases, there's even a few common personality traits. I'm not, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call Chuck Grassley uh, uh, or, or John McCain and say they've got his temperament, but they've shown some moments. And certainly, Chuck Grassley uh, is as bad with the Twitter as he is. So uh, <laughs> there is that. <laughs> um, so okay, well, so with all that said, uh, so this is all helpful. So uh, those individual, we've got a couple more minutes. Those individual Senate races, for for those out there who really are thinking, uh, where should I pay attention? Or if I've got five dollars, where should I send it? Or you know, whatever it may be, what which ones would you put? Would you say right now you think Democrats have in the bag of the sort of the swing ones? Which ones do you think they don't really have a shot at, and maybe anything else in between? So, uh, you know, in a normal year, um, this would be a much easier question. I mean, look, the reality is that there are probably 46 or so seats that are pretty safe Democratic seats. Uh, and there are roughly 46 seats that are pretty safe Republicans. So there are really eight, eight places where I think you've got tighter races than you, than, uh, than you might have even expected. Patty Murray's fighting a really tough race in Washington. Um, wow, interesting. Again, I wouldn't have expected that. You know, Katie McGinty's really taking it to Pat Toomey, and I can tell you from at a personal level, nothing would make me happier than to see Pat Toomey have to move back home to wherever, whatever wherever that might be. He calls home. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I think Florida's tough, man. I think Florida's really tough. I think Rubio, um, you know, Rubio got crushed in the presidential because his constituents said, "You've been away too long," and I think. The fact that he's back there, I think that's going to be a really tough race. I think if I were, if you had $15 and you could send five bucks to any three places, I think you support Deborah Ross in North Carolina, who is in a real, real tight race against Richard Burr. Yep. I think you send, I think you send five bucks to Nevada, where Catherine Cortez Masto, who I think is a great candidate, uh, yep. is really sticking it to Joe Heck. That's really, really tight. And, you know, I, I think on a personal level, uh, I'm all about getting the crazy out of Washington, and I don't want to, like, badmouth somebody who, who's, had, who's had his own challenges, but I'm a huge fan of Tammy Duckworth in Illinois. Um, most of the polls show her leading Mark Kirk by a slight margin, but that's a flip seat uh, if we can take it, and I think that Tammy Duckworth would be amazing in Washington uh, in, the, in the Senate. Well, I agree with all, I agree with all of those. I, I'm glad that you uh... – that you picked out that North Carolina race. I thought that's a sleeper race where Burr has, has never had a tough race before. People forget that he ran in 2004, a, a presidential year when Bush was running on 9-11, and 2010, a big Republican wave year. He's never had a very high approval rating, and this is the first race. It's not even that. So I, I, I like that one. I also would tell people there was a poll came out today that showed Hillary down one point in Missouri, uh, Monmouth, who's had a pretty good record, and it showed – I think um, Candor down four points. I want to say in Missouri, yeah, so that might four. also be yeah. a place worth looking. But yeah, sadly, I, I go ahead. We're coming to the end, but give us one more good thing to look for. Uh, you know what? I think that um, everything's going to change after the first debate. So, uh, if you're 15 bucks, you can put it in a short-term, high-interest earning account. 
So you can have 20 bucks after that first debate. I'll have a whole different set of states to recommend. That is why you are who you are. Folks, that was Jason Boxed giving us the great information. Follow Jason on Twitter. Um, darn it, I don't seem to have his uh, handle in front of me. Well, listen, I'll, I'll tweet it out. Thank you, everybody, for listening and for, and for listening. It's been a pleasure doing the show. Hope to talk to you again soon, folks. Take care. To women who hoped to evade the ticking clock of time, Dr. Frederick Brandt was the most potent drug dealer in the world. And the dealer got high on his own supply. From Imperative Entertainment and the team behind Broken Hearts comes a new series that will challenge everything you know about fame, fortune, and the fear of growing old. I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox.